Hello and welcome to So You Think You Can Fanon. Please check the link tree in the description and see all of our beautiful, lovely, salacious links to listen to more. Thank you. Yo, what's going on everybody? Welcome back to So You Think You Can Fanon, the only podcast on the internet that um, types at 90 words a minute. Uh, I'm Greg Chudley. We got Matt. We got Sergio. Hello. Say hi. Hello. Hello. What are we reading today? Well, we're back in the thick of uh, the All Guardsman Party. Oh, I love All Guardsman Party. And by me, I mean our audience for some fucking reason who just can't get enough of this shit. Okay, I think we, we all equally love All Guardsman Party. But I think I think they love it just a little bit more. That's Maybe. true. Just a little bit. And I think uh, I think we might as well just get right into it. I think everybody knows what All Guardsman Party is at this point, if you've been watching or reading or listening to this series. No, there's starting at part 14-2. Um. Yes, the best place to start. <laughs> like we're anybody. a fucking Final Fantasy game. This is, thir- this is part 14, part 2. Final chapter, <laughs> prologue. <laughs> I love 365 calendar like days. That. 365 days over three. You see, yes. because there's uh, 365 days in a year and there's three of us. Yes. All right. So, Start reading, will... boy. Yes. All right. So, a few hours later, the cogitator of death delivered a data slate containing what Twitch and old Bill assured us was a map marking four locations in the occurrence borders, various tainted areas. The rest of us took their words for it, and Twitch was put in charge of deciphering it into three-dimensional directions. Sarge chose the location in the lower aft tainted section as our first target, on account of how it was near the other thing he wanted to sort out with the expedition. We set out with old Bill and his gaggle of engineers and tech acolytes in tow. Now that we called in an exposition and went in heavily armed, but outside of the warp, the tainted areas weren't that dangerous. Yes, they were still contaminated with warp energy, which manifested as all sorts of phenomena, but they were generally minor things like whispers, winds, flashes of movement, the non-insectoid variety of ghost, the crutoids and other vermin which wandered into the area wound up horribly mutated and occasionally possessed, which were only a minor inconvenience, and warp entities which can survive in normal space without some kind of host are rare. Really, it was just a matter of carefully avoiding mechanical hazards and the occasional persistent anomalies, such as the time loop on subdeck U3, the room stuck at 5 degrees Kelvin, the time loop on subdeck U3, and the perpetually bouncing ball, and the time loop on subdeck U3. We reached the area on the that the cogitator adept had calculated as the center of the ghostnid infestation, without any incidents more serious than a tech acolyte getting slightly electrocuted and Nubby getting stuck during an attempt to bypass a leaking plasma conduit via air shaft. Unfortunately, when we got there, we didn't find any daemonic portals, eldritch devices, tyranid hives, or anything else we could cover with death packs. All we found at the geographic center of the ghostnid infestation was a couple empty rooms and corridors. We had Fumbles take a look around just in case, but while he claimed the area were slightly more tainted, while he claimed the area were was slightly more tainted than its surroundings, it seemed to him like it was just a side effect of being filled with ghost nids for longer. 
We debated exploding the entire area, just on the off chance it would accomplish something, but old Bill asked us not to. So lacking anything productive to do, we headed down to Cargo Bay E-71-3. E-71-3? E-71-3, I guess. Home of a few dozen plasma conduits and an insanity-inducing ancient heathen insectoid idol that had been repurposed as an architectural support. Operating on the theory that, even if it wasn't related to our bug problem, it probably wasn't a good idea to have a giant eldritch statue just sitting around in a warp-tainted cargo bay. We asked Old Bill to figure out a way to disentangle the plasma conduits from the idol. Not so we could study it, of course. That would be silly. We just wanted to make sure that the engines wouldn't explode or something when we destroyed the thing. Old Bill grumbled a bit about not fixing what isn't broken. Isn't broken, but he and his boys, through a tarp over the thing's horrible, mind-shattering visage, began scavenging replacement parts from the surrounding area. A few hours later, the various plasma conduits, pipes, and wires were being supported by a haphazard network of metal bands, clamps, crates of expired food, and three of the room's graph plates fastened to the ceiling. The tarp-covered idol was dragged into the center of the room, a pair of melta bombs with what looked suspiciously like cross scythe insignias on their sides were fastened to it the horrible chittering screaming went on for quite a while but it trailed away as we'd reached the edge of the tainted area nothing else really happened well aside from an 11 percent drop in the efficiency of engine six and half of the aft sensors overloading old bill said he told us so by the time we got Back from our expedition, the distance between us and the three approaching ships had closed to the bare edge of our Vox system's broadcast range. Now that they were closer, our sensors had identified the ships as a Navy frigate and a pair of smaller SDF ships. So Sarge, the captain, and the adepts decided not to mess around with subtlety and announce our identity and intentions right off the bat. Remembering his recent lessons on the importance of stance, dress, and overall first impression, Sarge scrounged together a replacement for the inquisitorial costume and the evil goon uniform, which had been rather gleefully abandoned in men's room garbage bin. After he'd more or less ripped Doc's evil goon uniform in half during his attempt to make it fit, he settled for wearing one of the captain's spare uniforms and hung his interrogator's rosette in clear view. Suitably outfitted, Sarge then spent nearly two hours with the old diplomacy adept, recording a two-minute vid which primarily consisted of his name and rank who requested his message be forwarded to the local Inquisition base and the digital authorization code from his rosette. His arduous task completed, he joined the rest of us for a few games of cards while the message crawled across the system at the annoyingly slow speed of light. Four hours and several thrones lost to Nubby and Fumbles later, it occurred to us that we really ought to have gotten a response by then. And we all trooped up to the bridge to see if something interesting was happening. We arrived just in time to hear one of the sensor techs report that all three approaching ships had increased their acceleration and four more had left orbit. Twitch informed everyone that he had a really bad feeling about this. Really bad feeling about this. Over the next few hours, the vids were the vid was reset multiple times. A request for confirmation of receipt was added. An audio version with audio-only version was sent, and some tech acolytes were sent out in a shuttle to check that our Vox system was actually sending and receiving correctly. All this effort accomplished was absolutely jack shit, aside from increasing the acceleration of the approaching ships even further and raising the local paranoia level to amazing heights. In emergency meeting among us of everyone who could contribute to a serious conversation on our options was called and the rest of us invited ourselves along anyways there was some initial complaining by jim the adepts and other such stuffy people about the whole meeting about how the whole meeting was pointless 
since no one actually knew anything useful about the situation. So all that anyone could do is make wild guesses based on hearsay and unsupported speculation. That sounded fine to us because it was how we made most of our decisions and everything typically worked out, so we ignored their whining. The initial topic of conversation was just what in the Emperor's name was going on and if there's any chance we could sort it out. All theories stating that the approaching ships were friendly uh, and there was just some sort of inexplicable reason why they couldn't just talk to us were immediately thrown out on the grounds that the universe didn't work that way. Twitch's theory that the local naval forces had been taken over by an advanced force of demonoids or possibly commandos was dismissed for similar reasons. The general consensus we arrived on was that the locals were following the astropathic kill order that had been sent out by the insane choir master, which had probably included something like disregard any messages they send, especially the ones containing inquisitorial authorization codes. This raised, raised a bunch of new questions, though, the primary one being, why the hell had the Inquisition rescinded that order yet? Since it was unimaginable that the Inquisition hadn't noticed a sector-wide astropathic message to kill someone, much less a whole ship of people who were in their records as inquisitorial agents, we felt sure that an investigation into the incident on the station had at least been started. It was, of course, the remote possibility that whoever they'd sent to investigate had completely botched things and either swallowed the choir master's obvious lies or been offed by the locals, but that seemed unlikely. Despite our personal experiences, the Inquisition on the whole is rather notorious for its incredulity and competence. Doc suggested that the investigator's ship could have been lost in the warp, or that other warp travel-related shenanigans had occurred, such as our own warp journey taking only a few hours of real time as opposed to the three weeks we'd experienced. The captain shot down that last explanation, claiming to be absolutely certain for some technical reason that three and a half weeks of real time had passed, but allowed that Doc had a point about the dangers of warp travel delaying the investigation. The diplomacy adept also raised a valid point, which was that, given the time it would take to investigate the station in our direct route, no inquisitorial couriers would have reached the system before us. This meant that any, no, these astropath-exploding people are not heretics, don't kill them, order from the Inquisition, would have been sent out via astropath. So, uh, there's a very real possibility that a few things got lost in translation. For instance, the no, not, and the don't. Both of those explanations sounded good enough for us, but they uh, didn't account for why the local Inquisition base wasn't doing a damn thing, and that was a much more pressing concern at that exact moment. <laughs> The whole reason we, yeah, the whole reason we picked up this system as a destination was because the presence of an Inquisition base. We'd expected them to be able to help sort things out if, as had apparently happened, word of oh, hold on. Sorry, the dogs had that look on their face that they were about to start barking, so I kicked them out of my room. Uh oh. Okay. Um, That's good. We'd expected them to be to be able to help to sort things out if, as had apparently happened, word of our innocence hadn't reached the system yet. Okay, it wasn't like they ran the local nabby. There were just a small Ordos Hereticus, Ordos Hereticus outpost. There were probably a few buildings full of adepts who kept track of things, a handful of stormtroopers who hung out waiting for the next emergency, maybe one or two local inquisitors if they weren't off purging heretics in another system at the moment. Size aside, though, they should have noticed half the ships in the system moving out at once, taken an interest, and for been forwarded our messages. In the end, we put it down to massive incompetence. This wasn't a very good explanation, but the only other one we could think of was that some shadowy cabal of astropaths were secretly controlling half the sector via careful manipulation of information was, was just silly. Seriously, who'd ever heard of a bunch of astropaths secretly controlling everything? They were all nuttier than squirrel poo and prone to randomly exploding. 
The argument about whether the idiot running everything was the person currently running the Inquisition base or someone in the local Navy who was stonewalling them for some arbitrary reason was getting rather spirited when it was brought to an end by the arrival of the occurrence border's navigator. The tall and cadaverous man stalked in, probably attracted by all the shouting just a few rooms away from his sanctum, and informed us that we were all blunt-minded idiots. No one but Amy took much offense at this in our experience. This was just the navigator's way of saying hello, and we all waited to hear why we were a bunch of borderline cards. It turned out that what was happening was obvious, and he could have told us, it would have happened if we'd thought to ask him. That statement right there is a classic example of why no one likes navigators. Our ship had just popped out of the warp at an odd location, positively reeked with warp taint, and had a powerful, unrestrained, tyrannid psychic signature emanating from it. The occurrence border was a textbook example of a gene-stealer-infested ship looking to infiltrate a system. There was a short argument between the navigator and Tink about whether the zoanthrope was unrestrained or not. Tink ultimately lost, because if the bug was properly strained, we wouldn't have been up to our asses in ghost hearing it for the last few weeks. But the navigator did eventually amend his statement to partially restrained by a bunch of incompetence, heretics, and xenos. Anyway, the rest of us acknowledge that this was uh, as about as good an explanation as any, since excessive paranoia seemed a bit more likely than plain incompetence where the Inquisition was concerned, and asked of the Navigator if he had any ideas how to deal with this situation. He suggested that we get the hell out of this system before we're all killed, and make sure our next stop was somewhere where we personally knew people in power who could smooth things out for us. Uh, this suggestion did not go over real well with Doc, Tanker. Well, frankly, nobody fucking liked it at all, actually. In the end, despite all of the complaining, Sarge and the captain decide to follow the navigator's advice. Doc's statement that Gravis would not survive another serious warp journey with the Zoothrope was noted, as well as Tink's list of things in the cells that were desperately, that desperately needed replacement parts to continue functioning correctly. But those were future problems, and the incoming ships were very current ones. One that, once that critical decision was made, the entire mob relocated to the map room, where most of us just complained and made unhelpful suggestions, while Sarge, the captain, and our adepts tried to find a suitable destination. To our surprise, we actually knew a fair number of people who would be able to help us. There was Inquisitor Oak, of course, as well as a few of our former interrogators, an overweight cross-dressing xenophile, the Rupert, and a few tech priests of various ranks. On top of that, the captain and adepts were able to survive a few Navy officers and Inquisition contacts. Amy grudgingly admitted her mother would help if she was asked, and Nubby said he knew a guy who was technically a planetary governor. The problem was that most of these people tend to move around a lot, and the ones who didn't admit they weren't anywhere near our end of the Ultima Segmentum. Even without all the complications of making a long warp journey with Gravis and the Zoanthrope, we just didn't have enough fuel to reach any of them. Mind you, if we had an astropath as opposed to a headless corpse in the morgue, and a sanctum covered with its blood, brain, and bone, we might have gotten lucky and been able to track one of the mobile ones down nearby. But in that case, we could have just sent a message asking our boss to sort out all this stuff for us. After we examined the map and determined that no one helpful was within our four-day travel range, the captain raised some less, less savory options. The discussion turned into what was or wasn't piracy and whether any of the nearby systems were too small to have naval defenses or afterpass, but developed enough, of a, enough to have a supply of fuel. Sarge began to zone out as he imagined just how unpleasant his post-mission interview with the Inquisitor was going to be, and then he overheard Tank pestering the Navigator. Tank asked if it was possible to coast in the warp like fuel-conscious ships did in normal space, and therefore, thereby extend our range enough to reach the nearest guaranteed friendly system, which was unfortunately the one inhabited by Nubby's quote-unquote guy. 
The navigator made some sneering remarks about a blunt's inability to truly understand the shifting nature of the warp and admitted, yes, you could trade time for fuel up to a certain point. As the rest of us checked whether this would allow us to reach anyone who hadn't been described as, quote, like a planetary governor, but without the actual planet and maybe a little bit more slavery, Sarge thought back to our original travel plans. He asked the navigator whether we could stretch four days of fuel to reach a destination a week and a half away, specifically the Orta Xenos research facility that had ordered the Zoanthrope. He got a flat, no, that would have been the end of it right there, and things might have turned out very differently, but the cogitator adept was listening in, and simultaneously responded with, maybe. That sparked a heated argument, which included a lot of talk about warp currents and something about problems with shortest paths. None of us really followed it, except maybe Tank, but the no and maybe slowly turned into, probably, assuming fuel efficiency is static, the currents are where the map says they are, there are enough storms, and we could survive three more weeks of warp travel. Well, there was a bit more debate after that, but Sarge had made up his mind. He was well and truly done with this shit. There would be no more stops, no more hair-raising escapes and misguided imperial forces hardened hard and fast on our heels, and no more bloody diplomacy. He could take three more weeks cooped up with Zonthrope and fighting off waves of its ghostly minions, as long as at the end he'd be able to dump both it and the problem of the crazy astropaths on whichever fucking Inquisitor had ordered the damned bug. This decision met a certain amount of resistance, primarily from Doc Tink and the Captain, who were tremendously worried about Gravis, the cells, and the very real chance of running out of fuel short of our destination, respectively. Unfortunately, despite... How undeniably horribly bad Sarge's plan was. No one besides Nubby thought the other options were any better. But anyway, we were guardsmen, and Sarge was in command. Once he'd made his decision, all we could really do was complain and bitch and moan and try to figure out how to make it work. The captain went off with his subordinates and the navigator to plot our route and informed us that we had five hours before the approaching ships forced us to warp. Tink and Jim immediately ran down to the cells and began frantically working with Theo to overhaul all the stuff they'd originally been planning to replace. Sarge, Amy, and Twitch sat down and began hashing out a defensive plan that would take advantage of the ghost-nibbed apathy when no one was around to provoke them, and the fact that they didn't ever launch real flanking attacks. Nubby dragged Fumbles off to help him relocate several of his stashes to areas that wouldn't be overrun when the shitstorm resumed. Doc carefully examined Gravis's condition, evaluated his chances of keeping the Marine alive for three more weeks of warp travel, spent a while locked in the bathroom, alternately screaming and crying, and then decided that something very, very drastic needed to be done. Doc made his way down to the Psyker containment cells, but thankfully didn't go with his first idea, which would have just been to kill the Zoanthrope and hope Oak and his research buddy would be in a good mood when they found out. Instead, he poked his nose into the small, currently unused side room that had initially been able been originally been used to hold captive psyker children and checked if any of the undersized stasis beds had been left over after tank and Theo had combined a few into one big enough to hold the zoanthrope he had a moment of panic when all the cells except for the one packed with debris were empty but when he asked Theo what had happened the little xenos explained that they pulled them all out during the project and the leftovers were just in a closet somewhere doc knew the inevitable fate of expensive pieces of equipment that got left in unmonitored closets so he skipped the scavenger hunt and just calmed nubby to ask which one of his stashes the stasis beds had wound up in. Nubby wasn't keen to part with his loot, but eventually came around to Doc's, ways of Doc's way of thinking when the medic started explaining all the horrible things that would happen to him if Gravis died. 
One of the five leftover stasis beds was hauled up to the med bay, where Doc and Valerie spent several minutes trying to figure out how to fit the upper half of a three-meter killing machine into a stasis bed sized for children ages 3 to 12. It was obvious from the start that Gravis' armor and life sort machinery would not fit, but it was quickly established that even without those, he was still far too large. In the end, Doc was forced to admit that the only way it would work if they removed Gravis' arms, shoulders, and a good portion of one of his sides. Sister Valerie did not approve of this course of action. There was a short argument between Doc and his girlfriend over whether being slowly hacked apart with a diamond-edged bone saw while struggling to fight off an alien biotoxin was guaranteed to be fatal or not. Nubby, who tagged along in hopes of getting his loot back, decided to be helpful at this point and suggested that Gravis didn't need to be cut up before going into the bed as the stasis field would take care of it for them. He was in the middle of rather gleefully recounting what had happened to the cargo servitor that had been caught in the half a field during Tink and Fear's experiments on combining stasis units when Doc realized the obvious solution to the problem. A few minutes later, Doc was down in the cells, screaming at Tank to stop messing around with the size suppressors and get to work, combining the five leftover stasis beds into one large enough to hold Gravis. Tink was pretty sure that his current task was a little more important now, so there was a bit of an argument. Things quickly devolved to the point where Doc was holding the techie up by the collar and shaking him. Jim stepped in at that point, applied a few thousand volts of enforced calmness to, lower, to Doc's lower back. He explained to the twitching medic that his request had been noted, but building the stasis unit would take a few days, would therefore have to be worked into the schedule between critical maintenance on the cells. Doc was in no position to argue with Jim, or walk for that matter, so he accepted the Cogboy's promise that it would be a top priority and was dragged back to the med bay by Nobby and Fumbles. He felt slightly better when Sister Valerie called him a genius and promised to kiss him later, but she wasn't when she wasn't covered in bodily fluids. Two hours later, we sent out a final message to everyone in the system, which pretty much a detailed list of why they're all idiots and or assholes, and disappeared into the warp before the approaching ships could follow us. All you could really say for the first few days of that warp journey was that they went better than the last few of our previous one. For a starter, our worst case scenario, for conservative values of worst, hadn't come true. The ghost nids hadn't just popped back into existence in the same places they'd been when we dewarped. Our brief stint in normal space had reset their counter or fucking whatever, and the bugs were only appearing in the tainted areas, though at a rate significantly higher than they had been before. Spawn rate aside, though, our defensive situation was much better than it had been, and the cells were in pretty good condition, too. Thanks to the heroic repair efforts of Tink, Jim, and Theo, the size suppressors took the strain of entering the warp without failing, and the devices seemed to be functioning better than they had before. There were some concerns about their power output, though, since as mentioned, the ghost nid spawn rate was, uh, was a lot higher than it had been, and there were also more minor phenomena occurring throughout the ship, as well as an increase in the number of IGPs, inexplicable gravis problems. This bothered Tink immensely, since his reading said everything in the cells was working fine, and they for now... And there wasn't any psychic leakage around the cells either. Admittedly, Theo and Jim's psi detectors consisted of the wraith bone block on a stick and a creepy ornate servo skull that had to be periodically fed live rats. But they seemed pretty confident in their readings. Anyway, Tink and the other techies didn't get to ponder the ghost nids for long. Even though the normal space repairs had brought them some breathing room, the lack of replacement parts meant every fix they made was a horrible, time-consuming kludge. And Doc made sure that every minute of their free time was dedicated to putting together Gravis's stasis field. Things were more or less calm 
for the first three days of our efficiently slow warp journey. We kept track of the ghost nez, but didn't waste any time engaging them. Tink and Theo managed some serious progress, and Doc managed to say very positive about the situation while struggling with Gravis's mounting medical problems. The first expression failure happened on the fourth day. The increased phenomenon ghost nez spawning was pretty much a, a repeat of last time, but the other aspects of the failure went differently. For one thing, we didn't lose any armsmen on account of how the ghost nids still hadn't expanded to reach our defensive lines, and when the failure began, they sure as hell had reached them by the end, though. This time, Fumbles did better, too. He managed to retain consciousness all throughout the whole thing, though he was a little loopy afterwards, babbling about something being all around and trying to find itself. Gravis, however, came off a lot worse. Doc and Valley weren't able to figure out exactly what had happened, but the Space Marine's secondary heart wound up resembling a raisin and had to be removed. Once again, the techies managed to fix things, but that marked the end of the easy part of the trip. As the fight had against the ghostness resumed, we realized their spawn rate wasn't the only thing that had gotten worse over time. The bugs were definitely stronger and more aggressive than they had been during the last trip, and they began to exhibit some new worrying behavior. Three times in the following two days, sizable forces of ghostness coalesced in areas where they hadn't reached our our lines yet and then slowly wandered into the ship as they ran into our forces we managed to beef up the defenses in time on all three occasions but they were all difficult fights and this change in attack patterns forced sarge amy and the captain to seriously reevaluate their plans by the sixth day it was becoming apparent that holding out for two more weeks would be close to impossible the unexpected increase in the ghost and strength and their new penchant for the occasional focused attack forced our lines back days ahead of schedule, and the initial ship-wide increase in phenomena we'd been seeing uh, was getting worse. It was actually beginning to feel like the Geller field was, fa was failing, except Old Bill was certain that it wasn't, and the usual whispers and blood seepage had been replaced with far-off chittering sounds and tyrannid ichor. It was obvious that the Zoanthrope was responsible, but it's still a mystery how, and we couldn't think of anything to do about it except killing the bug or dewarping. Mind you, dewarping wasn't the same sort of emergency option it had been before. This was because the warp drive took a whole lot of energy to function, so we didn't actually have enough fuel to get back into the warp if we exit it, much less go anywhere or dewarp again afterwards. So if we wanted to bail out of the warp, we were going to need to do it near a system that could provide fuel and handle all the risks that came with that. Still, the situation for, with the ghost neds was getting bad enough The Sarge is really considering calling for a detour. Though the only chance coming up to do so was at least another three days of warp current coasting away. So the situation was bad, but at least there was one bright spot. Thanks to the time freed up by a lucky streak of only minor malfunction in the cells, Tink and Fio had nearly completed Gravis's stasis field. The fact that they were down to just the last little part dealing with the power distribution, and it was proving rather tricky. Since they didn't want to waste time doing it all from scratch, the two of them went down to the cells to take a hard look at how they'd done it last time. This turned out to be a very good decision. Now, despite the zone throw being the focus of all this trouble, the three techies didn't actually pay that much attention to it most of the time. For one thing, after Tink had fixed the flickering problem, its stasis field had been working shockingly well. It was always the devices scattered around the room that needed maintenance. Secondly, the Zoanthrobe had gotten incredibly creepy after Sarge's slagged, off, slagged whole metal shield had gotten wrapped around its head. It never moved previously, being in stasis and all, but you always felt it was watching you under the metal, and the longer you looked at it, the worse it got. In retrospect, that was probably what some fancy-pants inquisitory super agent guy would have called a clue. 
Well, we were a little too busy for that shit. We just accepted that the metal-faced Xenocyker that looked like a cross between a phoenix, a snake, and a cockroach was fucking creepy and felt no need to examine it for a supernatural element. Anyway, all this meant that when Tink crawled under the stasis unit to poke around and asked Theo to watch the field for any flickers, it was actually the first time anyone had really looked hard at the zoanthrobe since we'd re-entered the warp. After a minute or so, Theo asked Tink if he'd touched anything, and when the techie replied in the negative, the little Tau scientist explained that there was some sort of interference pattern inside the field. Tink looked at the focusing array above his head, which looked perfectly intact to him, and asked what the pattern had looked like and whether it might be yet another psychic phenomena. Theo walked a circuit around the stasis unit, turned his head from side to side, and reported, There's actually two focal points, both positioned right behind the zoanthrope. They're sort of black and smoky and shaped like little wings. So no shit. There we were in the middle of the thing. I did end up being getting to say the thing. Too low on fuel to even consider stopping. When we realized our captive ghost summoning insectoid Xenos Psyker was actually a ghost summoning insectoid Xenos Daemon host. I mean, what the hell? Seriously, how in the name of the Emperor are you supposed to respond to something like that? There's bad situations and there's comically bad situations. What's anyway, I said Matt Damon because Sergio said Damon. <laughs> I've been saying Damon this whole whole chapter. I I didn't notice. I won't lie to you. Just Sergio always says brain. Damon. He never says demon. Damon. My... I, I I know I know it's demon, but I think we we decided like a bajillion episodes ago that Damon was funnier. Maybe maybe Nick It's really whoever it that, is funny. Whoever though. whoever that was in that recording is not me. So I don't know. Well, I, 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 I know Nick didn't know that it was called Demon. He just called it Daemon, but I, I, mean, I, I knew we just found it funny because we just said Daemon anyways. Daemon. Anyway, it took us a little while to figure out that the Zoanthrope was possessed. None of the techies knew much about Daemons, and only three of them, only Jim, had been on the occurrence border during its maiden voyage as an inquisitorial vessel. Nian next encountered the Daemon that had eventually possessed the Cogtain. So the three of them gawked at the Zoanthrope's miniature smoky wings for a while, debated whether or not it was something that could be ignored, and eventually calmed the rest of us to ask if we had any, any ideas. According to the armsman fighting alongside Sarge, his swears were so vitriolic they actually turned into little insectoid creatures as they left his mouth and had to be swatted out of the air as they tried to bite people, given how warpy his section of the line had gotten by that point. None of us questioned this. Doc burst into hysterical laughter when he heard. This caused a little bit of concern among the medical staff, especially the two nurses who had seen him melting people with tyranid biotoxin. Sister Valerie had carefully relieved him of his scalpel, dosed him with something relaxing but not incapacitating, and took over Gravis' watch while he giggled away down to the cells to see the wings for himself. After a brief period of mindless panic, Nubby denied all responsibility for what had happened and had to explain to those of us who hadn't been there what exactly wasn't his fault. Twitch just screamed, I told you, it was Damonids! into his comm bead until Tink muted him. Over the course of the next few hours, everything that had been happening started making sense. There was some initial confusion about how it was all possible, since the Xenology Adept kept telling us, absolutely, kept telling us demons absolutely could not possess Tyranids. I'm assuming they just forgot the word demons in there. Um, He gave this big lecture about the hive mind worked, and then trotted out that old line about Nids not having minds or souls, so anyone who's seen a demon engine stomping on a battlefield can tell you that neither of those things are strictly required. 
Anyways, the man was obviously full of shit. I mean, we could all see the wings just sitting there being all smoky and sinister, a bit on the tiny side. Can't really argue with that. So whether it was a matter of a dozen unimaginable coincidences coming together to make the impossible possible, or if the emperor just decided to screw with us, we had no, we had the first known case of a possessed Tyranid sitting in the cells. We'd hoped Oak's research buddy would be happy with it because we weren't going back to get another one. Where the demon had come from was a little more clear. Back during our first trip on the occurrence border, we'd come down to the psychic containment cells and found them occupied by five child psychers in stasis and a half-pint demon host who wasn't. After we looted a crucial part of the machinery restraining the demon host, as well as the five non-possessed children, the thing that had chased us across the ship, and it looked like a kid with, a massive, with massive wings made of smoke, curly horns, and glowing eyes, at least until we shot its host body to pieces and ran off to get a new one. And it ran off to get a new one. The demon came back a little later as a narlock with the same wings and such and had then gotten tangled up in a fight with a giant demonic servitor titan thing that the tag priest acting as the ship's captain had been constructing for whatever insane reason. That it ended with the narlock being incorporated into the servo titan and demon taking over in the demon taking over the Kajtain. It took some doing. When we eventually destroyed the Servinarlo Titan, patched the Cogton into the bridge lift shaft, and cranked the gravity up as high as it would go. That done for the Cogton, and between reducing its host to a greasy crater in our subsequent exit from the warp, we'd assumed that this was the last we'd seen of the smoked-winged demon as well. The fact that the Cogton's crater could never be repaired, even by replacing the entire section of the floor and wall, and the way it screamed at people in binary probably should have fucking tipped us off. So, we had dismissed the glowing screaming crater. It's just another occurrence border thing. Trust me, it doesn't sound stupid after you've been in the ship for a while. Got on with our lives. Didn't come to our attention again until we began refurbishing the cells in preparation for the Zolanthrope and had discovered that there was some sort of demonic portal linking the cell that had held the demon's first host to the crater. Once again, we dismissed it as just another phenomena and pretty much forgot about it. In retrospect, even without the demonic involvement, it should have really occurred to us that having some sort of warp portal inside of all the psi shielding and warp presence shrouding was a very bad, stupid, no good thing. Not being demonologists, we had no idea whether the demon had been lurking in the cellar crater all this time or if it had actually been returning from the warp via the places it had tainted. Either way... The presence of a restrained and frequently unconscious psychic being with no emperor hive mind to protect it must have looked so very wonderfully tasty to it. The demon had probably been slowly corrupting the zoanthrope ever since we caught it. How does that work with a giant bug anyway? Does the demon tempt at promises of sugar or something? But we felt really quite strongly certain that Sarge knocking the zoanthrope unconscious and into the tainted cell had been the final straw. I'm just, like, imagining, like, a demon, like, tempting, like, a bee, and it's just, like, seeing, like, a, a huge flower in its big Nectar. bee mind. Nectar. I think a bee might be tempted with becoming a king so it could serve its queen better or something. Unlimited That'd be an interesting Nectar. thing to look at. Well, well, it would be, it would more like, 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 like the, like the bee, like, locks the, like the, like the queen's room and keeps all the other, like, drones out, and he's like, alright, yes. I got her all to myself. The biggest yeah. nectar. The biggest nectar of all time. And then I think he would die. Because don't bees die after mating? Or I'm, uh, I might be thinking of the fact that they die after stinging. I don't know. I'm just thinking about, thinking about the biggest... thinking about the die after stinging, because I'm pretty sure kings can live for some time. 
I'm just thinking about a giant fucking uh giant fucking flower with unlimited nectar, and he's like, "Yes, <laughs> anything, anything for that." So funny. It's what Sergio's go now. Yes. Uh, yep. Uh, after we'd figured out we were dealing with, as Twitch put it, a daemonthrope, and one of one that was connected to this warp portal, which bypassed all the size shielding around the cells to boot. All the stuff with the ghost nets made sense. Well, sort of. We still didn't know exactly what they were, but at least it was clear how they were being called into existence, despite the zoanthrope being contained in the cell. None of us were experts on imprisoning daemon hosts, but we were pretty sure it took more than a, bit, a few size suppressors and a stasis field to do the job properly. Of course, knowing that you're always doing something wrong isn't the same as knowing how to do it right. The Inquisition had always operated under the assumption that daemon lore was a very need-to-know subject, and in the Inquisition opinion a bunch of dumb grunts most certainly did not need to know mind you up until this shit show we'd agree with that assessment none of us had ever imagined that we'd wind up trying to prevent a demonically possessed psychic bug from summoning tides of ethereal tyranids at least not without just killing the damn thing and calling it a day anyway the point is that our team's combined knowledge of daemon binding or whatever you call it consisted of a suspicion that it probably involved a bunch of runic circles holy icons and sinister looking chains that weren't actually connected to anything load bearing the key words there being suspicion and probably by the way so lacking even the slightest idea of how to handle the daemon directly. We decided to hope like hell that dealing with the source of the problem would somehow fix everything. All of our highly developed problem-solving skills were focused on the daemonically tainted cell, and a complex action plan of action was formed, which is to say we set up a blast shield and tossed a half dozen death packs into it. Of course, the just-blow-up-the-demonic-portal plan didn't work, but, you know, it might have. And it would have been silly not to check. So after establishing that we'd ma- all we'd managed to do was severely damage the shrine surrounding the Kajtain's crater and scare the shit out of a bunch of tech acolytes working on the bridge lift, we moved on to our next low-effort solution. We took one of our three spare pieces of psi shielding, crammed it into the doorway to the tainted cell, and slapped a few dozen prayer seals on it. When that didn't work, we added the two other pieces of shielding, and when that didn't work, we finally allowed Fumbles to take a look. That was a nervous ten minutes, let me tell you. Despite our very well-founded concerns, letting the accident-prone Psyker poke at the demonic warp portal worked out fine, mostly because the size suppressors kept him from doing anything when he eventually spazzed out. Afterwards, once Fumbles had been woken up and Twitch had stopped abjuring him and throwing holy water around, the Psyker blearily reported that nothing we were currently doing actually had any effect on the flow of the demonic energy between the tainted cell and the demon throat. However, he was reasonably sure that increasing the distance between two between the two would at least reduce the flow a bit, since moving the warp portal wasn't an option. The only way to accomplish this was by moving the demon throne, plus the various pieces of technology which kept it from killing us all. The task of figuring out how to more or less relocate the entirety of the cells fell to Tank, who immediately declared it to be impossible. This didn't stop him from calling a council of the nerds, including old Bill and Hannah, to figure out exactly how impossible it was, though. Tink and his little think tank quickly established that the only system in the cells that could be easily moved was the psi suppression. This was primarily because they'd stopped bothering to bolt the suppressors back down between maintenance cycles, so they were all just taped to the fucking floors and walls. On the other hand, the psi shielding and warp prison shroud, which Fumbles said were hiding the demon throat's location from its ghost nids, were pretty much built into the structure of the cells. Just removing them would require days upon days of cutting, during which the ghost nids would probably swarm the cells. 
Finally, the stasis unit restraining the demon throb was not ever designed to be moved. Jostling the focusing array could cause problems ranging from flickers to spontaneous bisection of anything inside the stasis field, and power efficiency hadn't even been considered in its design, so running it off a battery was going to be kind of tricky. First problem to be solved was the stasis field. Tink and Theo realized that they didn't have to fix everything wrong with the Demon Throb stasis unit, since they had a much better one sitting nearly finished just a few rooms away. Their decision to repurpose Gravis's stasis unit almost got the two of them stabbed by an enraged medic, but luckily they were able to propose a solution of keeping Gravis alive as well. Tink explained from behind an overturned table that there reason that the nearly dead space marine can't just be thrown in the demon throb stasis unit after it's been relocated doc hadn't been happy with leaving his patient even in stasis next to a demonically tainted hole in reality but eventually agreed and allowed tink to flee the med bay how okay so these are players in a tabletop setting playing warhammer how the fuck can they not realize what's gonna happen no it's fine <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Go ahead, Sergio. Size shielding and the shroud were much trickier problems, and a fair bit of time was spent lamenting that the whole mess at the station had ruined our original plans to requisition enough materials to completely rebuild the cells. After a few hours of trying to figure out how to pull everything out and set it back up for the tide of ghosts and it's killed everyone, the lud ludicrous proposal of cutting a massive hole through the ship and moving the cells, minus the warpy bit, as one big old thingy was put forward. Luckily, it'll build to save us from that stupid plan when he decided to take a second look at the list of parts that needed to be moved. Consummate scratcher he was, old Bill could typically suggest five different alternatives for any missing critical part, and he was better than a savant when it came to keeping track of what had would had be used where it would had be missed. His abilities had let him down a bit when it came to highly specialized systems in the cells, but they came to our rescue in a big way when he asked whether a psi shield panel was anything like a psi focusing panel. At some debate, Tink pointed out that it was all moot, <sighs> since there weren't any psi focusing panels in the inventory. Old Bill asked whether anyone thought the headless astropath still needed the ones lining his sanctum. One quick check of the dried brain splattered sanctum later. It was established that the panels, which focused incoming astropathic messages on the chair in the middle of the sanctum, could indeed be repurposed as shield. Theo, who'd become the resident expert on the underlying theory on most systems of the cells, claimed it was just a matter of tweaking the machinery that allied the crystal matrices in each panel and began estimating how long it would take to move them all the bay that had been picked for the new cells. Tink asked why the hell we should bother moving them. I love how they have so much faith in this hostage that they have in their in their ship to yes. the point where they're like, yeah, you can be in charge of this whole thing. Yeah, um, that's kind of funny. The decision to just repurpose the occurrence borders bridge adjacent astropathic sanctum as a demon throb holding area was reached very quickly by Tink and his fellow nerds. It took a little more time and a lot more shouting for Sarge the captain and the navigator, whose sanctum was next door, to come around, and the time was used to tackle the final problem, the warp presence shroud. The shroud with a device which hid the warp presence of anyone inside the ship from those outside. Such devices were typically used to hide vulnerable psychers from hungry demons during warp travel, but they were also great for hiding from other psychers. Since the occurrence border had been smuggling child psychers, a, pro a practice which the Inquisition sort of frowned upon, the cells had a very good shroud, though it wasn't done. It hadn't done jack to hide the zone throat from the demons which had been lurking inside its radius. 
Anyways, this well-made shroud consisted of a fair-sized pile of arcane machinery, which was unfortunately hooked into some sort of projector matrix embedded in the side shields. Once again, it seemed like days of disassembling while fighting off Ghost and Onslaught would be needed, but Theo had a better idea. The little Tau scientist claimed that the block of Wraithbone he'd been use- playing with for the past few weeks had a- some interesting anti-warp properties, and he was 72.361% sure that it could be used to build something that would work like a shroud. It was a mark of everyone's exhaustion that the annoying little Xenos' idea was accepted without argument. So roughly 26 sleepless hours after our, our discovery of the Zone Thorpe's wings, we designed a new cell to contain it. 30 hours of hard work and heroic ghost tyrannid killing after that, the new cell was complete, and all that was left to do was to transport the barely restrained Xenos demon host through a ship filled with the ravenous insectoid warp ghosts it called into existence. When Tink said everything was ready, all of us plus Fio and Gravis's mobile medical monstrosity gathered in the cells. During the prior few days, we'd managed to hold off ghost nids and keep the space marine alive, despite a steady increase in the demon thrope's power over the ship and the irreparable failure of one of the psi suppressors. During the little free time we'd had, a route had been plotted from the cells up to the lower decks, to the bridge lift, and finally to the sanctum. The corridors were cleared of impediments. All the armsmen that could be spared from the main lines were stationed at checkpoints along the route, and the new station this unit had been mounted on a motorized cargo pallet. When the last of the preparations were finished, Sarge alerted the captain, who sent out a ship-wide warning, and we got ready for the most hectic prisoner transfer of our lives. The first step of transfer was moving the demon throbe from its old stasis unit to the new mobile one. There's probably a whole chapter on this sort of thing, whatever the inquisitorial equivalent of the uplifting primer is. You're probably supposed to use all sorts of seals, powerful psychers, and some of that special tyranny tranquilizer the scythes had. We had to make do with a few ropes, a ramp made out of a wall panel that no one would miss, and a fucking cargo net. Tink lined up his long-distance manipulation tool, see the poking stick, on the stasis unit's off button, then jabbed it and dove for cover. As the stasis field vanished, a pair of deep red spots appeared in the demon throbe's metal-covered face, and its stubby little smoke wings suddenly expanded to a full meter in length. A horrible, soundless screech echoed through the cells. Thousands of insects began pouring out of every crack and crevice, and a corona of black-edged green lightning formed around the demon throbe. Then, the cargo net yanked it off its grab plates and dragged it face-first down the corrugated metal ramp. Alright, so, the demon throbe flailed around a little, but didn't have enough strength to offset the manly and womanly muscle of our four guardsmen. We dragged it screeching and kicking up sparks into the waiting stasis unit, and Fio turned on the field. The insects around the room vanished into little puffs of black and green smoke, but a faint echo of the psychic screeching lingered, and the spots where the demon throbe's expanded wings met the edge of the stasis field smoked in an ominous way. Sarge decided that this shit was too eldritch for his liking, yelled at Tank, Theo, and Doc to move their asses. Doc was in a bit of a panic on account of how the insects had been crawling out of Gravis' torso wound during the demon throbe tra- transfer, and the fact that every life support system hooked up to the Marine was screaming for attention. He dithered around trying to figure out wh- what to treat first, until Sarge resolved things by hefting Gravis off his life support bed. Doc tried and failed to keep everything connected as the torso fight Space Marine was holding across the room, then just gave up and helped Sarge. Gravis started to spasm and spurt all sort of disgusting fluids as he was pushed into the bubble of Null G in the middle of the stasis unit, prompting Doc to panic and hit the on button a little early. He apologized profusely as he bandaged Sarge's slightly shorter finger and sprayed disinfectant over everything Gravis had dribbled on. While Gravis was moved, Tink and Theo ran around us, directing us and their drones in the process of moving the psi suppressors. Extensions were spliced into the power cords of each easily hacked together Tau Imperial hybrid devices and a jumbled circle of arcade machinery 
Mary was formed around the Dame of Thrones stasis pallet. Then, piece by piece, each of the side suppressors was fastened to a pallet until it bristled with various engines, antennas, crystals, and less identifiable pieces of tech. When all the suppressors were fastened down and connected to the large battery array mounted on the front of the pallet, and Gravis was safe-ish in the demon's... Demonthrope's old stasis unit, we're pretty sure that his expression of pain and horror wasn't anything to worry about. We'd readied our weapons and got ready for the hard part. Sun Sarge sent a final warning to the captain and counted down. As Sarge reached zero, Spot 2.0 opened the outer door to the cells. All across the ship, the Tyranid warp ghosts paused in their pursuit of repositioning arm armsmen, turned to focus on us, and solidified. We came out of the cells at a dead sprint, or at least those of us on foot did. Theo was perched in a semi-clear spot on the pallet behind the demon throat, gibbering at his drone in Tao speak, and doing his best to keep everything from spontaneously exploding. Tink at a similar spot on the battery pack, and was splitting his attention between steering the pallet and scouting ahead of a spot. Twitch and Sarge were on point, pulling ahead to cover each corner in a doorway. A cover and doorway. Amy... Hold on. This sentence is making my brain hurt. Twitch and Sarge were on point, pulling ahead to cover each corner and doorway. Amy and Doc were keeping an eye on our flanks. I just my brain was not recognizing the period at the end of that sentence, and my brain no, was just okay. like, "Oh, uh, <laughs> what is it saying?" Amy and Doc were keeping an eye on their flanks in the middle of the group. Finally, Nubby was squeezed into a crevice on the back of the pallet, where he was simultaneously able to cover a rear and avoid doing any running. To our immense relief, we made it to the end of the corridor without the demon throw doing anything warpy or a swarm of ghost nids appearing around us. Tink and Theo had said that leaving the cells suddenly wouldn't suddenly grant the demon throw more power, but the rest of us hadn't been so sure. Anyway, after the first straight away, we'd been we began winding through the area around the cells in a manner that could be described as drunken. Despite all appearances, though, it really was the fastest route available. Due to the chaotic layout of the occurrence border, the size of the pallet, and the amount of the ship occupied by the ghost nids, the path we'd mapped to the sanctum was anything but direct. The first leg involved the winding path around the cells area, which took us dangerously close to ghost nid territory before depositing us at one of the few major tilt corridors still under our control. We ran as fast as we could through connecting corridors across recently cleared storage bays and up the occasional microlift, ignoring the various minor phenomena, maddening whispers, and occasional uncleared technical hazards. Our progress was surprisingly good, possibly because we were lent extra motivation by what sounded like every ghost on the ship baying for our blood. But it wasn't enough to keep us ahead of the entirety of the swarm. The first pack of ghost nids clawed its way out of an oversized air vent behind us as we exited a short in-bay lift. Luckily, that first pack hadn't included any ghostly termagants or higher forms. It was just a bunch of hormagants and rippers, though they were significantly more solid than any we'd encountered during the previous weeks. Solidity aside, we knew how to deal with a bunch of melee hostiles coming up a coverless corridor. Now we began picking off the lead bugs with pulse fire while Twitch dug through his detonators and the rest of us kept moving forward. As the bulk of the pack passed a pair of yellow X marks in the corridor wall behind us, Twitch found the right detonator and set off two of the fragments he'd lined the corridor with. Doc and Amy paused for just a second, to help Nubby mop up the stragglers, and then everyone returned to their positions, and our flight continued without the pallet ever losing any speed. As the last of us left the corridor, Twitch armed the rest of the mines, and a minute later, we heard them all start going off. Alright, well, this is a very exciting chapter. I am uh, I am intrigued with how that this ends. I, uh, I love the DM of this, who is constantly thinking of the most insane batshit crap to throw at them, because I don't think demon tyranids have ever been a thing right no i don't okay. think so i can't imagine it was that yeah yeah no it's far flung yeah they were um 
they, they, they were right into the assumption that it was initially assumed that demons couldn't possess Tyranids because they don't have souls. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I really like that chapter. It was good. I like it. I don't know what else to say. But, I mean, we're like 17 episodes into all Guardsmen Party. I just love how insane all of the characters are and how they go about things. I specifically loved that they're, that instead of, instead of like, the, the, the thing is, oh, we just combined a bunch of bags together for this big guy. They're like, all right, how much of, how much do we need to cut off of him uh, that he doesn't need anymore in air quotation marks so we can fit him in this child bed? I hope that <laughs> one day I'm able to achieve half as good of a uh of a campaign is this of a campaign like atmosphere um as these guys get you know yeah i think this is a pretty fucking awesome thing i don't want to toot my horn but i feel like the campaigns we've gotten the closest were parts of the Monster Hunter campaign, and I think parts of Nick's campaign, and Jacob, I'm trying, I'm trying to remember, what was your longest running campaign? You, you had, I have no idea. Um, and of course, the quintessential so one, um, the Power Rangers campaign, I would say, is probably the closest we've ever gotten to this, because of how long it went. We ever going back to that one, Sergio? Um, I'd like to do a reboot of it using the actual Power Rangers role-playing system, because I, I, I looked at it, and it's, like, everything that we'd been wanting to, like, like, to everything do. that we, we, that, that we'd had, like, like, that we were using, they have, like, official, more thought-out, more fleshed-out, more balanced rules for. It's just, I just really don't have the time for it at the moment. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I mean, you're, like, super busy. Yeah, because this is like if I'm not working, then like I'm like recording these episodes and doing other things, and it's just like I would like time, <laughs> and yeah, also it doesn't re- it doesn't really like there isn't really time for like um like because because obviously it's like like day off it's like well if I have a day off I would like to record and not like do like a session because obviously like this is kind of a priority for me but maybe down the road once I'm no longer at my current job um. I might mm-hmm. be able to get back to it. And yeah, that'll be awesome. Anyways, I hope that everybody listening enjoyed this one. Uh, I still don't love you. Not like how uh, Nubby loves his mind, at least. Only only if you love us, like, you would love the Emperor. Yes. I, I, I love them like Doc uh, loves mutilating Gravis. <laughs> I wonder if he's going to be alive by the end of this. Probably. I wonder not. if the. I wonder. If, I. I wonder if the. Because I've been wondering since the beginning, will they actually bring the the Daemonid in intact? I'm willing to bet that they will at this point. It feels like that kind of has to be the case. What I'm. What I'm curious about is um. Uh, anything that may or may not be up with the Inquisition, because. Even though they look like a gene stealer ship, I feel like the Inquisitors could have told them, oh, by the way, they're in this fucking hinky dink fucking godless ship abomination. Just, uh, you know, give them a little bit. It'll be fine. They'll keep their distance. So I'm curious to see if there's anything up with that. The next one is called The Redacted Conspiracy. So I'm very interested to see what's up with it. Oh, I did, uh, um, uh, 
so I, I joined uh, the author's uh, Discord server, Shoggy, uh, mm-hmm. and I did learn that the upcoming chapter of the All Guardsmen Party is the finale, and that is why it's <gasps> taking so long. Oh, We're gonna no. be out of a job. We will. So sad. It's been a fun ride, though. It's been a very fun yeah. ride. I mean, we still probably have like twenty episodes till we get there, right? How many more are there? Uh, there's quite a few. There's like uh, a good and then also he has uh, one, two, um, three, four, five, six, seven, seven more stories. Probably like eight or nine more episodes. Oh, well, we're definitely not going to be able to do each of them in one episode. They get longer and longer. Mm-hmm. He also, uh, I know he also is doing other writing, so there'll there'll be there'll be more things from him that we can we can read. Mm-hmm. That'll be fun. Anyways, yeah, I am. Uh, I'm still enjoying it quite a bit, which I was not. I am too. wagering that we would read all of this when we first started this, but I think it, it'll be a, a fun finale to read at some point. I'm glad we did. Time. I'm gl- I'm glad I suggested this. Yes, that was an excellent A level decision. Really, really a, solid choice. Not an S tier. Well, I'm imagining like A being right up there at the top. So yeah, we'll go S. S tier decision. No, it's All okay. right. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye bye.